Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on Live with Sherry on this special episode entitled Prison Nation, the Incarceration and Neglect of Women and Girls in America. I wanted to choose this topic because of several circumstances that have transpired over the course of this year that has enabled me to take a closer look at the incarceration of women and girls in the United States and how it has adversely affected women of all races. I think many of us will agree that we regard our liberty as one of our foremost human rights, but I don't think it's until it's been subject to some form of deprivation or violation of a liberty interest that we really have the opportunity to focus on what's going on around us. And every year in the United States of America, particularly since the 1990s, thousands of women and girls have been subject to arrest, conviction, and incarceration for alleged crimes. And this is particularly true of women of color who represent less than 25% of the general United States population, but we represent almost 50% of the U.S. prison population. So while there are so many people who are elated and glamorizing and glorifying, if you will, the orange is the new black, and really taking those types of programming to the next level, I think that we're becoming too comfortable and too complacent with the issue of incarceration and the mass incarceration of women and girls that we're not really taking the time out to focus on what some of the side effects of doing this has on our communities and society and the future of America as a whole. And I want to discuss some of that and more when we return. Thank you for joining me. What we want to be able to do today is to just sort of give me an opportunity to just sort of share the effects of mass incarceration. I think we become very complacent with thinking that women go into the prisons and that you're going to have this fun opportunity to serve your debt to society and return back home and life resumes as usual. Whether you're incarcerated or suffer a deprivation of your liberty for a few hours or for several years, it will have a lasting effect and an impact on you, hopefully for the better in the sense that you'll be able to come to terms with it and use it in a way that helps your fellow man. But for those who can never get to that place, this show is dedicated to you. I have found in the course of my experience, both personally and professionally, that most women and girls who are subject to incarceration or just the mere arrest are generally victims of circumstances that include but are not limited to nonviolent offenses between them and their mates or significant others, victims of drug or alcohol abuse, victims of sexual or physical abuse by men or significant others in their lives, and that many of these female inmates have never even attained a high school diploma or have formal education. So then I'm caused to ask myself and the question to be asked to you, so what does America have to gain by incarcerating the most vulnerable segment of our society? If you're dealing with a group of individuals who are not well-educated or well-versed, do not have a formal education, and they've already been victimized in the worst way, what do we really have to gain by subjecting these women to further victimization? And in light of recognizing many of these problems that women and girls 
who are victims face on a day-to-day basis, we look further to see that most of them are generally also victims of ineffective assistance of counsel, bias enforcement of laws, and discrimination and racism, as well as separate from being victims, yes, victims of indigency status. And I say victims because respectfully in our criminal justice system, females are more likely to be represented by public defenders. And many offices of public defenders are not trained to address the issues that plague female inmates, which include but is not limited to issues that pertain to but are not limited to racism, bias enforcement, laws that discriminate against them, or judges who engage in abuse of discretion or prejudice or manifest injustice. And no one really takes the time to address this. And allow me to give you some examples. There are laws in this country that allow for many of these women who engage in self-defense after being victims of long-term issues of domestic violence to suffer the same consequences as male perpetrators who may wake up one day and for no just or legal cause decide to blow somebody's head off or stab them to death. Now, I'm not making an excuse for the woman who chooses to stay home, and that's a total different topic. There are some who operate with a Timex mentality and some who have a Rolex mentality. The Timex mentality is one who's taken a licking to keep on ticking. She becomes subject to that lifestyle of domestic violence and abuse. That mentality differs from the Rolex mentality of someone who has a choice to leave but doesn't. Yes, I said it, someone who has a choice to leave but doesn't. The exact scenario of that is when many of us look at the scenario that took place in the NFL with the Rice case. Here was a woman who was just engaged at the time to be married when he purportedly engaged in a violent act against her. That was a choice that she would have had not to marry, and she chose nevertheless to marry for whatever the reason. There are circumstances where you have women who suffer a Timex mentality of taking a look to keep on ticking, many who operate out of instances of fear or retribution, where others have a Rolex mentality. They can leave. The door generally is left wide open, and they have more of a choice or an opportunity to go through that door. And many instances, the Rolex mentality is the woman who has a formal education, who has resources, and who has a support system. The Timex mentality generally doesn't have that. And those are terms that I coin and I use with no uh, disrespect to either one of those watch companies. But nevertheless, it is the best way to explain it. Because if you remember the Timex commercials where you took the watch, you threw it up against the wall, you stepped on it, you threw it at the bottom of a swimming pool, and you said Timex takes a licking to keep on ticking. And there are, in many regards, women and girls who live that life every single day. So when they wake up one day and they've had enough and they respond to the years of abuse and what some would say snap, You seldom, if ever at all, have public defenders who use the history, the pattern, and the practice of domestic violence in a litigated matter to allow those cases to go to trial. Many of them are pushed or forced into taking pleas, yes, forced pleas into taking pleas, and in many regards, they will accept the plea because there aren't enough resources available to get experts to testify about abuses that women sustain and the long-term effects of those 
abuses, no different than when we deal with women who have been pregnant and suffer from other forms of depression and the like. We have the same thing with women who are returning home from the United States military who are experiencing post-traumatic disorder, and many of those women are suffering from the very same, which is what I was trying to get out, the very same types and forms of depression and mental oppressions that they experienced when they were victims of domestic violence as well as during their pregnancy and military. And that was the point I was trying to say, and I got tongue twisted with um, trying to bring those points to focus. So I said all that to say when we make the decision to incarcerate women with these backgrounds, what is the United States really gaining? Well, with the privatization of the prison industrial complex being a growing trend in incarceration of women and girls, companies like GEO and Corrections Corporation of America, who represent two of the largest for-profit prison systems in America, they have a lot to gain. And with very little, if any, oversight of those institutions, you have many of these women and girls who end up in those systems with no treatment or rehabilitation, and therefore you have a revolving door where they return back to society through reentry, no better off than when they entered the system to start with. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, Prison Nation, America's Neglect of Women and Girls. Mass incarceration is a critical issue that has adversely and continues to adversely affect the United States of America. But I think it is even more pronounced when we target the most vulnerable segment of society, and that is not to imply that based on gender that somehow we get a pass. However, the question begs, what is really the agenda of the mass incarceration of women and girls? Usually, it started during the drug war, but it really was not a war on drugs. Rather, it was a war on addiction because there were addicts who were being the subject of these mass incarcerations, both on federal and state levels. The implementation or enactment of legislation like three strikes and you're out created to that. But equally so, the push to get so-called drug dealers off the street resulted in individuals dropping dime or ratting out innocent women and asserting that many of these women were part of drug enterprises. And so as such, there were deals being cut where many of these men would turn over as many people as they knew. And in many regards, knowing that these women had nothing to do with the illegalities of their criminalities, nothing to do with drug distribution, possession, and or manufacturing. Nevertheless, the United States government, both on a federal level and state government agencies, use these informants as a way to subject the most vulnerable segment of our society to long-term incarceration. And so even as we have these conversations about criminal justice reform in this country, I'm beginning to come to the realization that no matter how much I want to believe it, that is all nothing short of a lie. You think that the United States Supreme Court, the federal district courts and local state courts did not know that the three strikes legislation technically was unconstitutionally vague as applied in many of those instances? Do we have a reason to believe that the most talented justices 
in the country did not have enough information that the most powerful government and the most powerful minds and the most brilliant thinkers who are in our Congress and U.S. Senate, that they don't know when they're writing the legislation that it's constitutionally void for vagueness, that the laws are unconstitutional as void for vagueness, excuse me, that they don't know this, that they don't know that when they're writing these laws that they're going to be discriminatory when they are applied, that they don't know that the people that they will be most adversely affecting are individuals who don't have the resources to properly defend themselves. So even when they are innocent, many of them feel it's better for them to just simply accept the plea than to go forward. I have been fortunate enough to be able to not only speak face-to-face with women and girls who've been the subject of incarceration, but to be on the inside to see it hands-on for myself, to see what they deal with on a day-to-day basis, being forced to wear one-piece uniforms that forces them to disrobe that and expose the rest of their bodies, or moreover, to take showers and be fully exposed to male officers and female officers, as well as to their fellow inmates. What does America have to gain by breaking the most vulnerable of their population? Most male who are detained have a onesie that allows for them to properly use the restroom or alternatively to 90% of the time not feel and or be as exposed as the women are. And these are subject to system-by-system basis. But why should a woman feel that she is further humiliated during her incarceration, as many of them say that they are. They can't take, go to the restroom in privacy. They don't have the opportunity to use the restroom in many systems unless they disrobe themselves completely because they're wearing a one-piece uniform. Many of them don't have shower covers, so therefore they're fully exposed to all of the other women who are taking showers. Why? You've simply been accused in many regards of committing an offense. Many of them have not even yet been a judge guilty on a county level, and yet they're suffering at the hands of a system that has already basically said you're guilty, and now you prove to me that you're innocent. Bias enforcement of laws, the very same laws that generally would apply to men, they would get a pass on. How many men have victimized women through harassment, through stalking, through abuse, and yet As soon as a judge has an opportunity to accuse a woman of such a crime, how false it would be, the opportunity presents itself to do just that. And those very same fact patterns that when presented in a mirror image against the men in our country, they won't even be submitted to a police investigation, let alone an arrest. Discrimination and racism. The conversations that we're having all too much of recent in this country but it's because we're not working toward any types of resolution. So you've got all this white paper research to state that it exists, but we do nothing with the information once we get it in an effort to bring about actual change. How do we in the United States of America take women from strip searches to sexual assaults, like the incidents that take place in the state of Georgia, Rikers Island in New York, and out in California, and a host of other states where information has been brought to the forefront? How do we in this country give a $1 million bond to Dalen Roof, a mass 
murderer, a terrorist who not only murdered people in the state of South Carolina, but did so in a church. And then we take 16-year-old Deanna Watson, an African-American female who had been victimized and physically abused and assaulted at the hands of her mother's boyfriend in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we give her a $1 million bail? Who's arguing for excessive bail for her? Who's saying that that bail set for this 16-year-old under these circumstances violates the excessive bail clause and her Eighth Amendment rights? Why is everyone so quiet and so comfortable when the victims are girls? We take to the streets in America when our males, white or black, are wrongfully accused. But when our girls or women are, we become very complacent. And part of that is because women are the caregivers of their families. So when their spouse, a significant other or son is incarcerated, they take to the forefront. They are the ones who's holding up the sky, if you will, and trying to mitigate the circumstances. But who does that for them? Who's doing it for them? Unfortunately, not even the so-called women's groups are doing it. I don't hear a lot of these so-called organizations for women speaking out on a lot of these types of incidents. I haven't heard anyone speak out on Deanna Watson, 16-year-old, victim of abuse at the hands of her mother's boyfriend with a $1 million bond. You basically should have just denied a bond because what is the likelihood of her getting that? So she stabs a man in self-defense, and then in another state over, Dayland Ruth gets to murder this terrorist, nine African-Americans in a church. You would think that the judge in Charlotte, North Carolina, connected the dots. Here's a young 16-year-old girl with no record, no history, a student in school, and the only history is several phone calls to that home for domestic violence where he had been beaten and abusing her and her mother's children, her siblings. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me on Live with Sherry. This is Sherry on today's episode of Prison Nation, America's Neglect of Women and Girls, Mass Incarceration. Millions of children in the United States have a parent who is either incarcerated or subject to penal supervision with almost 66% of incarcerated women having children. There are so many topics that I'm going to be discussing in the upcoming weeks pertaining to prison nation, the mass incarceration of women and girls in the United States. But I cannot close this show out without reminding us that to neglect women in prison means that you have created a national threat to our national security. You have created, yes, a national threat. The threat is not isolated to the specific city or state where that young woman is incarcerated. It is a threat to national security. Why? Who holds up half the sky? Who is responsible for bearing forth fruit and nurturing that fruit? and given us the productive citizens that we have in our society. Mothers, and we would hope fathers, but it is the mother 
who carries that child for those nine months, who gives birth to that child, and who is generally called upon to be the caretaker of the child, where dad is generally the provider. And there are situations where the roles change. However, where you began to incarcerate women and you neglect the children, you end up with a motherless society. And what is to be said about a motherless society? We've already seen the ill and adverse effects of a fatherless generation where men are MIA, missing in action, from the day-to-day lives of their children. And look, my God, at what this country has become in the last 25 to 30 years since we have pushed forth these harsher sentences, discriminatory sentencing, bias enforcement of laws. And now we're doing the same thing to women and girls. And it is a threat to national security when you have a motherless generation that are already being victimized with that absent T father. And many are being raised in group homes by communities and by the wards of the state. What is to be said about such a country who professes itself and sticks its nose in everybody else's business, who declares to countries like China human rights violations? What is to be said about America? and mass incarceration of women and girls. We are speaking out of both sides of our mouths, and our actions are really dictating the outcome. Where we say on paper we're concerned about reform. The only reform that we are concerned about, which will be a separate show in its entirety, is because of immigration reform. We know we have to make some type of criminal justice reform because the very same people that once engaged in the activity who we're now trying to subject to deportation and new legislation and legalization, we now know that those jobs have to go to somebody. It is a financial issue that causes us to reconsider what we always knew was wrong, harsh sentencing and mass incarceration. And it is not a decision based on consciousness of coming to recognize the errors of our ways. It is a generation that has been adversely affected by laws like three strikes, Rockefeller laws, mandatory minimums, and the disparate impact of discriminatory laws that were discriminately enforced, where judges, even with those with unbridled discretion, abused their discretion. So we're not really angling for or aiming for reform for criminal justice as an entity, as a subject matter, as an advocacy perspective. It is about immigration reform. And the numbers now are so overwhelming that municipalities and state governments are adversely affected, as is our federal government. So what do we do? And how do we replace that labor? Let's go and get those who have been incarcerated, our nonviolent offenders, and we will give them those jobs. How do we address 
the mass incarceration of women? How do we prepare the most vulnerable members of society for reentry? America's obsession with incarcerating them should be of great concern to everyone. This notion of, well, they committed a crime, do the time, and all that foolish talk from the 1990s, many of us knew when we were saying it, those of you who are politicians, that they weren't committing crimes to do the time. And at 30 years for a first-time offender, 19 and 21 years of age, a nonviolent offender is absurd. Almost 2 million women to date in America have been incarcerated and or subject to the penal system. And these women, they represent the future generation of America. Who will be your future doctors or lawyers? It's a threat to national security. Who's going to manage our STEM programs of science, technology, engineer, and mathematics? Who's going to be responsible for our armed forces? Who's going to be responsible for rearing the next generation? What do we do? We have alternatives to mass incarceration, which include community and faith-based initiatives, which promote treatment and counseling for drugs, mental health, alcohol, and provides life skills, education, and employment services. Restorative justice programs also will aid us in assisting victims of crime so that they understand the mindset of the perpetrators and that they're willing to aid in rehabilitation where appropriate. And diversion and treatment programs do work, and we must, we must be willing to address these issues that plague our most vulnerable members of society who are nonviolent offenders who can benefit from treatment. How do we survive as a country with a motherless generation? How do we survive by incarcerating our most vulnerable members of society. The notion of taking them from their house to the courthouse to the jailhouse to be warehouse has to be eradicated. And as we move forward with the topics of criminal justice reform, let's indeed reform the criminal justice system and stop all of this. We are doing this. We will do that. Stop playing politics with the lives of these women and these girls. Because 20 years from now, and if not sooner, we will all be able to see the adverse effects of a motherless generation. Thank you for joining me on Live with Sherry.